Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, I pray that as we come together today to celebrate the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that we wouldn't love just a concept, that we wouldn't love just a, a mythical story that tells a good moral about how we can be freed from the shame and consequences of our sin. But God, I pray we love Jesus instead. That we see who he is, the real man who suffered and bled and died, the Son of God, dwelt eternally with you, who gave himself so that we might be freed from all that has held us captive in this world, so that we might love him and follow him. God, I pray that for each of us. And we walk out of here more in love with Jesus than when we walked in. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, it's been two months since I preached. I, I hope I still remember how to do this. Uh, but yeah, it, it actually kind of drove me nuts, which again is funny if you know my story, because like when God called me into ministry, I really had no desire to preach at all, at all. And now like it, it was crazy for me not to. So, But I do want to thank Jim and Caleb and, and, and Shane, if he happens to be listening, uh, just for coming and, and filling the pulpit and doing such a great job. Guys, I can't tell you what a blessing it is to have men who are faithful in handling the word of truth, can rightly divide it. Uh, what, a, what a release, what a relief um, that, that we have these multiple people that can speak the word of truth into our lives and do just such a fantastic job at it. It, it just it makes it all the more a joy to, to do what I do, knowing that I'm not alone in this effort. So, guys, thank you and well done for, for uh, all your service. I really appreciate it. So after two months, I'm going to jump right back into Mark, just right where I left off. And the, you might be saying, like, whoa, what are we going to do here? Are you going to warm us up? Well, I, I just need to tell you a quick little story about this. This is really not that big a deal because if you're familiar at all with church history, you've heard of a guy named John Calvin. Anybody heard of John Calvin? Yeah? Okay. John Calvin was a pastor at a church in Geneva, Switzerland, right? And, uh, and he was there for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, he got himself into a little trouble with the city leaders because he wouldn't give some of these city leaders who were involved in a very scandalous lifestyle, he wouldn't give them communion. He just refused them. And so they got mad and they booted him out. So for three years, he lived in Strasbourg, France, okay, away from his pulpit. He's still writing, he's still studying, he's still learning, doing all this kind of stuff. You know, but then finally things kind of got resolved. The city government asked him to come back, right, after three whole years. And he gets there and he opens, he gets up, stands in the pulpit. He opens up his Bible to the exact place that he left off. And without a single word of, hello, how are you? It's nice to see you again. I missed you for three years. Hey, this is where we were way back when, three years ago. He just opened the Bible up and began right where he left off as if no time had passed at all. Okay, so feel fortunate that I am not going to do that to you. Okay, I will bring us back up to speed. Now, um, I've told you many times through this series in the Gospel of Mark that Mark, the author, wrote this letter to teach us three primary things. Not only these three things, but these are the primary things that he wants us to know. He wants us to know who Jesus is. He wants us to know why Jesus came. And he wants us to know what it means to follow him. That's it. That's his primary concern, his primary message, that you know Jesus' true identity, that he is both fully man and fully God. He wants you to understand Jesus' purpose, the very reason why he took on flesh, which is to live a perfect life, to completely fulfill God's laws, to live in ways that you and I could never live, in perfect obedience to God's law, and then to sacrifice that life on the cross for sin. He rose again three days later so that we might know that that God's penalty for sin has been satisfied and there is hope of eternal reconciliation to God. And he wants us to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to come after him, 
what that looks like for us. Is that something that we kind of do on the side or when it's convenient? Or does this really take all of us? That's it. That's Mark's main concern, that you know who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. Now, some people will come to Jesus and they'll say, okay, that may have been Mark and the other gospel writers' concern. That may have been what they wanted Jesus to be about, but that's not what Jesus was about. People will tell you that that Jesus' message was really one of morality. One of just, Jesus came to teach us how to love and to serve one another and to be at peace with one another, right? His was just an altruistic social gospel where we just kind of go and and do good things for one another and, and just be real nice and love one another. And that's what it's all about. That was really what Jesus' message was. He didn't come talking about his death and resurrection. That was not his intention. He never claimed to be the Son of God. No, no, he was just preaching love. That's all he was doing. And he just happened to cross the wrong people and it got him killed. That's what they want to tell you. Have you heard that message before? I tell you, you don't have to go far to hear it. You can go down the street, go a couple of miles that way, you can hear it. And depending upon the time of day and who you're talking to, You don't have to leave this building. That's the reality of the situation. Many people believe that. That Jesus just taught a message of how to be more moral. How to be a better person. But if that's the case, then I don't know how they justify Jesus' words that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to pick back up in Mark chapter 10, looking at verses 32 through 34. And that's page 846 in the Bibles there in the chairs. If you don't have one with you, please turn there. And what we'll see from this passage is that Jesus' mission and his message is inseparable from his true identity, from his death and resurrection, his, his martyrdom, and from his call to discipleship. Jesus' message, Jesus' mission was to teach who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. His message of love and and moral example cannot be separated from his life, death, and resurrection. It cannot be separated from his identity. It cannot be separated from the very purpose in his coming. And we'll see that in Jesus' own words today. So again, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, page 846 there in the Bibles. Please read along as I read it out loud. And they... Jesus and his disciples were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So, my points are pretty simple. I've already stated them, I think, four times. Maybe more. But this is all about who Jesus is. Why he came. And what it means to follow him. So first, this passage gives us an indication of who Jesus truly is, his identity as both fully man and fully God. Now, you might take this fully man part for granted, just like, okay, Dutch, I get it. Jesus was a man. I, I, I don't question that. I don't doubt that. Here's, here's a kicker for you. If you study church history, you know that the earliest heresies within the church that the church had to deal with was about Jesus' nature. Who was this guy, Right? But it didn't center on his manhood, on the fact that he was a human being. No, the, well, I should say it questioned that, right? No one questioned whether or not he was fully God. Everybody agreed with that. They questioned whether or not he was really man. 
So you've got the, the Docetists, you've got the Manichaeans, you've got the, the Gnostics with all their own opinion on, on Jesus' deity. Could he possibly, not, not questioning Jesus' deity, but questioning his manhood, his humanity. They're like, okay, Jesus is, is God at some level, but is he really man? The Docetists, they thought that Jesus was like some sort of theophany or apparition, like a ghost that walked around just seeming to or appearing to be a man, but that he wasn't really. But as we've gone through Mark, I mean, it's been pretty obvious that Jesus is a man, right? Jesus does what men do. You know, he's, he's eating, he's drinking, he's talking to people, he's walking along the road, he's, he's teaching, right? He's, he's touching people, people are touching him. Right? You don't touch a ghost, right? You don't touch an apparition, right? They, they don't exist, really. They just seem to be. But he's real in, in every way. And you see him going along. And here he is in this passage, and he's, he's leading the way, right? He's a real man taking a real journey with other real people towards the real city of Jerusalem. He's walking ahead of them. He's leading the way. He's teaching them as they go. He's leading by example. He is repeating the same instruction over and over and over and over again to them. He's investing himself in a, in a few. And what you see is that Jesus is here is... In some ways, is just quite mundane and human, especially in his method of teaching. Now, it just seems very ordinary, very human, very repetitive, and dare I say, even very boring. Maybe that's why the disciples didn't get it. I don't know. They were falling asleep. <clears throat> now, some of you are looking at me kind of like I'm stupid right now. Just like, yeah, I get it, Chet. Well... Hey, guess what? Object lesson. This is an object lesson. I am, I am going above and beyond making things absolutely clear to you by being re- repetitive about Jesus' humanity. Jesus is clearly human. Do you guys get that? Do you understand it? Because I can repeat myself and we can continue the object lesson, right? We get it, right? I'm glad. Well, here's where this hits, okay? Here's where the humanity of Jesus hits us, okay? No one here, I doubt, would would deny in any way that Jesus was really a man. I don't think any of you would, would question whether Jesus was really a man. But it rubs us in a couple of ways um, like this. Uh, we can and we do reject his human nature in our thoughts and, and in our attitudes when either, one, we focus so much on the perfection of Jesus, on his super spirituality, on the fact that he's the son of God, that he can't possibly seem to relate to me. He's not like me. And the other way is that we've heard this story so many times that it just be, it's just that. Jesus is just a character in a story. In that first issue, the focusing on the perfections of Christ, focusing on his super spirituality, on the fact that he's the son of God, we look at him and we're just like, dude, I can't relate to you, man. You're perfect. You don't sin. You don't understand me, right? You've never felt the way that I felt. You've never been where I've been. You've never seen the things that I've seen. And so you go through life like, like Jesus is not enough. The gospel can't possibly be enough because Jesus isn't like me. He doesn't understand me. He hasn't felt the way that I felt. He hasn't struggled with the things I struggled with. And so we go through life and we think that, okay, Jesus is not quite enough. So I need either something else or I need, like, in addition to or besides him altogether. Or maybe you've had such a past where you have suffered so much and have sinned so much that you think you're beyond beyond hope. Jesus is perfect. He can have nothing to do with me. I'm a wretch. Look at me. I'm a mess. What can Jesus have to do with me? I know that some of you have felt that way. I've talked to you. I know. But that's not true. Jesus is a real man. Hebrews 4.15 says that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Do you guys realize what that means? Whatever your struggle is, it doesn't matter what it is, Jesus was tempted in that way. Jesus the man was tempted in that way, yet without sin. 
And here's where it really kicks us, because where we have given into the temptation, where we have fallen to the weight of the temptation, Jesus bore it all. He didn't fall under the weight of sin. He was he he experienced the full weight of it. All right. Now it's like this. I can say that I can bench press 400 pounds, right? And I can go up there and I can lay down on the bench and I can grab a hold of the bar and I can psych myself up and scream and do all this stuff and I can get that thing up off the stand so that it drops down and crushes my rib cage, and that's what I can do. And I can say in that sense, I I have bore the full weight of that sin. I, I bore the full weight of those dumb the, the, those weights, right? I, I've because it has crushed me. Right? I've been crushed underneath it. But no, the only way that you actually bear the full weight of it is if you pump that thing back up and put it back on the stand. Right? That's what Jesus did. Right? Where you were crushed underneath your sin, underneath the temptation, and you felt prey to sin. Jesus didn't. So he bore the full weight of it. He actually knows your temptation better than you do. Because he bore it all. He experienced every bit of it. And was without sin. And so if he can do that, Jesus, being fully man, can identify with you perfectly. And if he can identify with you perfectly, then there is hope. You can change. Your life can change. The other way that we inadvertently deny the full humanity of Jesus is that thinking that all of this stuff in the Bible was just so long ago. How can it really be relevant to me today? How can it really speak to me in my struggles here 2,000 years later? I mean, Jesus, if the dude was even real, he lived 2,000 years ago and he died. What's that got to do with me? Right? And so, or, or maybe you have read this story so many times over and over and over and over again that it becomes just that. It's a story. Jesus is no more real to you than Captain Ahab or the cat in the hat. Right? Maybe even less real to you than some of your favorite characters in novels. You associate more with Gandalf, right? Or Anakin Skywalker or Harry Potter or, God forbid, any of you say Bella and Edward. (laughs) But it's possible. I had to look up their names, by the way. I've never seen the movies or watched the, you know, I haven't read the books or anything. I just, I looked it up, you know. Thank God for Wikipedia. (laughs) But you go through life, and Jesus is so far removed from you that he's no more than a fictitious character in some story from long ago. And that story, it might have a moral, but it's basically a myth. It's basically a fable. Something that you can learn from the old man in the sea or by reading Greek mythology. Really no different. It's that far removed from you. So that when you come to a passage like this one, the fact that Jesus was delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes who condemned him to death and handed him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be spit upon and to be flogged And to be killed has no effect on you. Doesn't that make you want to weep thinking about this? Or maybe you cried more at the thought of Woody and Buzz and the other toys, almost incineration there in Toy Story 3. That you had some sort of, more of an emotional connection to these animated, fictitious toys when Andy left for college than you did for them. Than you did for Christ. This death was horrific and humiliating. And he died for your sin. Is that real to you? Because I want to I want us to be honest about how we think about Jesus for a minute. I mean, do you love the real man, Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Or do you love the idea? 
Do you love the moral behind the story? Do you love the, the idea of love? Do you love the idea that, that there is a, a means for you to be freed from the shame and consequences of your sin? But you don't love Jesus? That you could trade some other concept where you could be freed from your sin and shame and all that kind of stuff. You, you could trade it if, it if the deal was a little better for you. Like you could have that thing and something else. We think about this, guys. This hits us hard. If Jesus isn't real, then there's no sacrifice for sin. If Jesus isn't real, then you can't have a personal relationship with him. And if that's the case, then why on earth are we here? Because you're in love with an idea and nothing more. No, the gospel accounts couldn't be clearer. Jesus is really, truly, historically a man who died a real death. And because he is risen, you can have a relationship with him. This is not a fairy tale or fictitious character. Jesus is a real man. He's real. But in addition to being fully man, Jesus is fully God. Mark, throughout his gospel, is an intentional, not just to tell us, hey, guess what? Jesus is the Son of God. No, he wants to show us. He wants us he wants to paint the picture. He wants to bring us into the unfolding of these events so that we would see and we would realize that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he starts way back in chapter 1, just about as, as quickly as you can get there with Jesus' baptism, as God himself tears open the heavens and he booms, thunders down from heaven as the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And he said, Behold, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then as you keep going, you see all of this evidence of Jesus' authority as the Son of God, right? You see Him healing people. You see Him, him casting out demons. You see Him doing just all of these miracles. You see Him teaching as one who has authority, not like the religious leaders of the day, but as God, somebody who has authority over the law, somebody who has authority to forgive sin, somebody who has authority over nature, somebody who has authority even over death itself. Mark brings us into that. And we get to see it with our eyes. We get to see it in chapter 9 in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration as Peter and James and John were there and they got this glimpse of Jesus' heavenly glory and they were freaked out about it. But we see it in our passage as well. In verse 32 it says that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And there are the disciples. And they were amazed. And those who followed them were afraid. Okay, look at the reaction. You've got this sense of shock and awe, uh, this, this wonder, this astonishment and apprehension among those who followed Jesus. They, there was fear and amazement over Je who Jesus was proving himself to be, both in his words and in his actions. He is seen, he is understood as glorious. They don't, they don't fully grasp it yet. They don't, they don't quite comprehend what all this means, but they know that there is something more to Jesus than he's just simply a man. They see him as glorious. Peter, James, and John have seen it with their own eyes. And they're also amazed by the fact that Jesus is resolved in leading the way out there ahead of them as they're on the way to Jerusalem. Well, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? It's just what he says, that he is going to suffer and die. What kind of sadistic person is going to be running straight towards that? Leading everybody on the way, Right? And they're kind of wondering, as he set his face like flint to fulfill his mission, what's going to be in it for them? Are they going to share his fate? 
But not only do you see an indication of Jesus' deity in the response of his followers, you also see it in the title that he gives himself, this Son of Man. This is Jesus' preferred title that he gives himself. He's mentioned it over and over and over again. It refers back to Daniel chapter 7, where you have this God-man, this 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 person, this figure who will come and exercise the sovereign authority that has been granted to him by God. It points over and over to his divine power. The Son of Man is this, this title that indicates divine authority. An authority, again, that we've already seen in so many ways as Jesus has shown that he, can, he has authority over evil spirits, that he has authority over nature, that he can walk on water, he can calm storms, he can even cause the dead to raise to life again. But perhaps the most convincing evidence of his deity is found in his passion prediction. The passion of Christ was his suffering, death, and resurrection. I mean, you all seen the movie. You kind of know what this is talking about, maybe minus the stations of the cross. But, but you know, you get it. You, you kind of seen the whole blood and gore, the suffering and death of, of Jesus. That's, that's what the passion is. And you can read Mark's account of Christ's passion in chapters 14 through 16. Now, we... Jesus has already alluded to his death, resurrection, and ascension four times in Mark. He's already done it four times. The first time was in chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, The days will come when the bridegroom, and he's referring to himself, will be taken away from his disciples, and then they will fast in that day. In chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration after Peter, James, and John have, have been freaked out by his heavenly glory. And, they, and, and Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. But it becomes even clearer in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, and then in chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. In chapter 8, Verses 31 and 32, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said it to them plainly. In chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, again, he teaches his 12 disciples that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But here in our passage, it becomes even clearer. Because Jesus says in verses 33 and 34, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. The detail is astounding here. This is more than the detail given by a simple prophet. I mean, Jesus tells us the location of his death. It's going to happen at Jerusalem. He tells us the process of his death, that he will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. That is the religious governing authorities of that day. And they will make an official edict, a judicial decision that he will be condemned to death. And then that would be carried out as they handed him over to the Gentile authorities, which in that day is clearly the Romans. And that means crucifixion for them, because the way that Romans handled these foreign convicts is to crucify them. As as humiliating and derogatory and and shameful death they could possibly do so that everybody else would just kind of get in line and not stand out against them. And then Jesus gives us an accurate account of his victory over death, and that after three days he will rise. Guys, this is not the foresight of a simple prophet. This is the willing plan and direct foreknowledge of God. I mean, I would encourage you to, after this, to go and read chapters 14 through 16, and you will see that Jesus' passion will unfold exactly the same way that Jesus predicted that it would. T for T. The detail is amazing. He says with divine authority that these things will be. This is not an option. It's not maybe, will be. And they were. This is why Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Men of Israel, hear these words. The son of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed him at the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he says just two chapters later in Acts 4.28 that this happened according to what God's plan had predestined to take place. It's clear that Jesus' death is no accident. He predicted it with clarity, with accuracy, multiple times according to the sovereign, perfect, predestined plan of God. And then you add to that the fact that Jesus was perfectly obedient to the will of God. That here he is setting his face like flint as he's leading them. He's walking ahead of them towards Jerusalem, towards his suffering, towards his death. You know, we like the idea of knowing the future. We're struggling with the decision. We just kind of want to know. We think we want to know what the outcome's going to be. Right? We think we want to know, have this divine foreknowledge to kind of be able to, to figure this whole thing out. But... Guys, think about it for a minute. If you really knew what was going to happen to you, would you walk in it? No. You'd turn and run the other way, right? You'd be just like Jonah, you know, just trying to jump ship, right? That's what you would do. And and here's Jesus, and he's he's predicted clearly that he is going to suffer and die in Jerusalem. And he's leading the way towards it. He's not running the other way. He's not hiding. He's not cowering. He's walking straight at it. You and I, we'd be running in the opposite direction. We would not be going this way. And so we we can't handle the idea of divine foreknowledge as much as we think we'd like to know it. We can't handle the truth, right? We just can't do it. And yet Jesus, having it, walked towards it. And then one final piece of evidence in support of Jesus' deity in this passage is his resurrection. Now, I've already mentioned four passages in Mark in which Jesus has clearly predicted his resurrection. Not only does he predict it, but he guarantees it, right? When he was talking to Peter, James, and John, heading down the mountain of transfiguration, he said, hey, you guys keep quiet about this until I rise from the dead. He doesn't say, if I rise from the dead, you know, you guys go ahead and share this information, but if not, just in case, let's just keep it hush, right? No, he says, wait until it happens. He is guaranteed. You see, this, he, he says three times that, this, that he will rise after three days from the grave. It is going to happen. It is guaranteed. And then you add to this John chapter 10, verse 18, where Jesus says that he has all authority to lay down his life and the authority to take it up again. Now, who has authority over life and death? Who alone has the power to raise the dead to life? I'm looking for the church answer from the kids in Sunday school. Go ahead. God. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, God. God has that. Now, if Jesus had just died, didn't rise from the grave, and that was it, well, that proves that he wasn't the Son of God. Right? Proves it. But Mark and the other gospel writers are giving historical accounts that he did rise from the grave. And not only did they say that it happened and this was history, but they lived in light of that, every one of them suffering and dying for the truth of this message, just like Jesus did. In the exact same way. If, it, if he's crazy, you'd think they'd figure it out. If it's a lie, who's going to go and do it? But Jesus did it. He was so confident in it that he walked straight forward, leading the way, knowing that this was going to be happening. And these men died for it. They believed, right? And if it happened, if he rose from the grave, it proves that he's the Son of God, that he's fully divine. And if he's fully divine, that means that he is Lord over all. Everything belongs to him. Everyone is accountable to him. Jesus is proving to us, without a doubt, that he is the Son of God and that we must respond to him. You see, no matter what you want to do, you cannot separate Jesus' moral message or his mission from his identity. It's impossible to speak of the morality of Jesus apart from who he is and apart from why he came misses the point entirely. 
The very reason he teaches us that we should love one another is based upon the fact that while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. That reveals his love for us. So the basis of our love is his love towards us. Right? Did you get that? This is not just a good idea that any old sage, that any old you know, wise man or prophet like Gandhi or Buddha could have come up with. This is a man who laid down his life and took it up again so that we might love one another as a result of that. But that is based upon his identity. If you miss out who, miss who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, the risen Lord, who first loved us and gave himself as a ransom for sin, then you will miss his message completely. And you can't possibly love in the way that you're talking about. So not only does Jesus teach us that in this passage who he is, but second, he also teaches us why he came. Now, I'm going to deal more with this in two weeks, right? I'll deal with this issue specifically, but this passage does indicate the purpose for which Jesus came. Now, it doesn't outright, Jesus doesn't outright say here, I came to do this. We don't have any of these purpose-intending conjunctions like to or that or so that or in order to. But regardless, we can see clearly the mission of Christ in this passage. I want us to back up for a minute and think about Mark as a whole. The first indication we have of why Jesus came was given in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that Jesus came proclaiming the gospel of God, that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Then in chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus says to his disciples, Hey, let us go from here from, to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. In chapter 2, verse 17, this, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And throughout his ministry, Jesus goes from town to town, from synagogue to synagogue, and he teaches from the Old Testament of the things concerning himself, how he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, how the Old Testament points to him and points to our need of him. Yes, he taught us about how we should treat one another. Yes, he did nice things like healing people and casting out demons along the way. But Jesus did this in order to reveal to us his true identity. And once Peter makes this confession in chapter 8, verse 29, that Jesus is the Christ, all of a sudden you see Jesus' purpose change. Where in chapters 1 through 8, Jesus was going from town to town, and he's preaching, he's teaching, he's ministering, he's healing, he's doing all these things. As soon as Peter confesses the Christ, then all of a sudden, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is going that direction. He's making his way. Right? And you see this come out. And what did he tell them would happen? That he would be delivered over. That he would be condemned to death. That he would be humiliated and suffer and would die. And three days later he would rise. And in this passage we see Jesus' purpose was to head directly towards his imminent death. He has set his heart, his mind, his face upon it. And they are freaking out about it. Why? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 45. If you look down just a little bit. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God, calling sinners to repent and believe the gospel, teaching them about how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and how the Old Testament points to their need of him. Now, I would encourage you this week to go home and read this passage. And then read chapters 14 through 16 so you can see how this unfolds in greater detail. And when you're finished with that, turn back in the Old Testament to Psalm 22 and look and see the connections between Psalm 22 and Jesus' passion. And from there you can go to to Isaiah chapter 50, right, the third servant song, and you see the same thing being laid out. But if you need just one passage that points clearly to this connection between Jesus' intention to head towards Jerusalem to die as a ransom for many, 
and in this Old Testament prediction of himself, then you need only look at Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but instead I'll focus on chapter 53, verses 3 through 6. Here God is promising to send a servant who would come and suffer on behalf of his people. And it says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You guys see the connection? Just making sense? Jesus, by his own words in verse 45, was headed to Jerusalem so that we would understand that this, that Isaiah 53, was about him. This was his fate. Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. Life that you and I can't even begin to think about living, right? We just, we can't even dream of what this looks like. No matter how good you have been, you can't possibly grasp how perfect his life really was. And he gave up that life after fulfilling the law completely as a sacrifice, as a substitute to pay a ransom to God for our sin. See, we've all rebelled against God. We've all tried to live our lives without Him as if this is my world and I am God. Right? All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to His own way. I mean, this is the essence of sin. It's not that we do some wrong things that somebody arbitrarily told us that we shouldn't do, but we have lived in rebellion to God. We have denied God. We have rejected God. We have refused God. We have hated God. We have set ourselves up as his enemies and put ourselves willingly under the just wrath of God. That is what we have done. And so this is a big deal. But by his wounds, we can be healed. His death was no accident. It happened according to the hand and predestined plan of God. His is a perfect sacrifice for sin, where God takes our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions, and places them upon Jesus. And then He takes Jesus' righteousness and places it upon His people. As this is called the great exchange, as Luther says. Right? Our sin for His righteousness. This is all of grace. This is something that we do not deserve. This is why Jesus came. Right? This is His message. This is His mission. Not with the message that we should treat one another better, but that God showed His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Guys, do you believe that you are a sinner? Do you really believe that you have been separated from God, that you have lived, tried to live your life without Him? Or at least you want Him on the periphery to be there when you want Him and ignore Him the rest of the time? Right? Do you recognize that you have willingly placed yourself under His wrath? That you deserve the eternal condemnation of God because you have denied His very character? Do you see your need of Jesus to be that perfect sacrifice for sin? Have you responded to God's loving offer of reconciliation by turning from your sin to following Christ? I mean, this is his message. This is why Jesus came. Not only does Jesus teach who he is and why he came, but these truths actually require a response from us. Third, Jesus teaches us what it means to follow him. If Jesus' mission and message hasn't caught you on his identity or his purpose, his call to discipleship, I'm afraid, will. If you can walk out of here and not be affected by this, then I don't know what to do for you. Pray for you, right? 
<laughs> but, but it's huge. You may not question Jesus' identity. You may have no doubt in your mind that Jesus is fully man and fully God, that you're living in complete obedience to that. Like you agree with it, you're walking in faith to that. You might understand your great need of his perfect sacrifice for your sin, and, and you live by faith in that. You know that that is the true reason why Jesus came, to reconcile us to God. You have no question whatsoever in that. But what really happens so often is that Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But yet we want to make that conditional. We'll follow you in this. I'll do this and this and this, but not not that, right? Not not that over there, okay? I'll do this, but not that. Now, we'll talk more about this next week, but I want to point out what this passage tells us about this call to discipleship. I mean, first, the disciple learns from Jesus, right? This is, this is pretty easy, obvious one. Jesus gathers them together, and he's telling them, What's about to happen to them? So they're, the, they're with Jesus. They come together. They hear, right? Sounds simple, right? Well, we'll see. Second, we see that Jesus led the way so that they might follow. Right? Being a disciple of Jesus means that you follow where he is going, not the other way around. Right? Jesus is not your wingman. Jesus does not have your back. You follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't follow you. Okay? That looks completely different. I mean, you can see that in verse 32. Jesus is leading the way, and they are going after him. Right? This doesn't seem too complex until you remember where they are headed. They're on their way to Jerusalem, to the place of suffering and death. These people are identified with Jesus. If Jesus is going to suffer and die, what's going to happen to them? Right? You can see why they were both amazed and terrified at the same time. Now, when it comes to their response, man, we, we love the idea of amazement, don't we? Well, yeah, and we should. Like, we love the, just these experiences that we can have and just being overwhelmed by the grace of God through the forgiveness that he offers. And we will, we will weep, we will raise our hands and sing, we will shout for joy at what Jesus has done. We will live in amazement. We delight in amazing after God and praising Him, honoring Him for all that He does. But we abhor fear. We hate fear. We hate anything that is frightening. We don't want it. We reject that. We often think that, okay, disciples shouldn't be afraid of anything, so if I'm afraid of this, that means that I shouldn't follow in that way. Right? I just, need to get, I just need to get rid of that. that. That's not where God's leading me because I'm not supposed to fear, right? I'm not to be afraid of anything that is fearful, right? But that's not what Jesus means. It doesn't mean that you don't experience the emotion of fear, okay? Right? It means that you don't let that control your life and that you're willing to follow Christ in spite of the consequences, even if it's scary, you got to follow him in that direction, right? If, if, if the disciples felt no fear, explain to me that after, why after Jesus died, and even after he appeared to them, and after he ascended into heaven, they continued to huddle around in fear in a dark, closed room. If they had nothing to fear, then why did Paul... I mean, the, the most gung-ho guy that we see in Scripture, why did he tell the Corinthians that I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling? You have a cold? No. Following Christ on the way is going to at times include suffering and hardship and maybe, maybe even death. Because we don't understand this because we live in a very cushy society where this is not a reality for us. And we think that we can put on Christ and that's real, real easy. But in reality, we're just adding him to the plethora of idols that we live under every day. Now, Jesus has to be first. Faith isn't the absence of fear, but the willingness to keep following Christ regardless of the outcome. Are you willing to follow Christ like that? 
Or is your discipleship conditional? This is going to look different for every one of us. There's no patent answer to this. But are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to put him first? Or are you saying to yourself, you know what, I'll take the amazement, but I'll leave the fear. No thanks. Jesus is calling you to follow him on his way. Not him following you on yours. That's going to look different for us, but it's his way. It's not mine. Are you truly willing to follow? Just like his identity and his purpose, Jesus' call to discipleship cannot be separated from his message or his mission. That means that it's not optional. Okay? In light of who Jesus is, this is not optional. And though at times it will be scary and there will be sacrifices and there will be losses and pain and maybe even death. But in all of that, Jesus will never lead you in a place that he has not already gone. See, this is the great thing about the leadership of Jesus. He's already gone there. He's already done that. And he's already claimed victory over it. Are you truly willing to follow him on the way? So, Jesus' message is more than simply morality. It's more than this message of love and and good deeds. Jesus came to teach who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. You, You might not deny this outright, but I pray that your lives don't prove that you question this in your hearts. May we recognize who He truly is. May we affirm our desperate need of Him. And may we be willing to follow Him, regardless of the cost, on the way that He has set before us. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank You for this reminder from Your Word of, of what Jesus is really all about. God, I, I pray for our hearts and our minds. I, I know that if you've gone, grown, grown up you know, at all hearing about Jesus, which in this culture you have, even if it's just a parody on a TV show, we get all these conflicting messages about who Jesus is and about what he's really about, what his purposes were, what his message really was. And God, I pray that you would remove all of those and that we would see and be convinced from your word that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And based upon his identity, you will see just how perfect that sacrifice is, that we will not try to compare ourselves to one another when we look at issues of sin, but we would look at ourselves and compare ourselves to him and recognize how much we need him. God, I pray that we would love Jesus, that we would want to follow Jesus. We're not going to follow out of mere fear or mere obedience, but out of a a deep sense of love because this real man is really God. And he took on flesh and he died for us. God, thank you for Christ. We love him. Help us to love him more. It's in his name we pray. Amen.